Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. That's it. The spring sitting of Parliament is complete after five months of debating bills, arguing amongst MPs, choosing a new leader, and some clashes between the Senate and the House of Commons. We kick off our show with a special McLean's panel to look over the highlights and lowlights of the spring. Canada's mission in Latvia is now underway with NATO troops massing in Eastern Europe to send a message to Russia. McLean senior writer Paul Wells has arrived back from his trip to our Latvian base. We'll hear from him as well as some clips from his interviews with Canada's Chief of Defence Staff and the Secretary General of NATO. We're about a year away from marijuana becoming legal in Canada and a group of Canadian medical associations have released new guidelines for users and doctors to lower the risk of cannabis use. The lead author, Dr. Benedict Fisher, is here to tell us which consumption methods people should avoid and how long users should wait before getting behind the wheel of a car. And finally, the Trudeau government marked National Aboriginal Day this year by dedicating a new building to our Indigenous peoples. But not everyone is pleased. We speak with an Indigenous architect who says the old U.S. Embassy building is a bad choice. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. Well, the spring sitting of Parliament is finally over, and we're starting off our show this week with a special edition of the McLean's panel. Joining me now is McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thanks very much for being here, guys. Mm -hmm. Good to be here. All right, so let's talk about the highlights and lowlights of the spring sitting. John, actually, you wrote an article uh, basically adding some criticism to almost every little accomplishment that the you prime minister it, put out in his statement. You make it sound so petty. It's so, so petty what I did. <laughs> well, let me be generous and, and talk about two things I think went well. The public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, delivered a national security review that got good good marks. It was more ambitious than people expected. It created a new agency to oversee uh, all of the different sort of spying and security agencies of the government, a bigger undertaking than people thought. The people we rely on at McLean's to analyze this, uh, Kent Roach of U of T and Craig Porcasey at, uh, at U of O, both thought it was good. So there's a positive day. And maybe slightly less expected, Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, steps up. He's a politically wounded minister based on some embarrassing stuff that happened to him this this year. He's got a huge undertaking, and he delivered a defense review that it's more debatable than the National Security Review, but it was a pretty solid document. Most of the, Again, most of the people I talked to, guys like David Perry, who were skeptical, end up saying, it's pretty solid. It looks like a plan. There are a bunch of political questions, but basically... You know, the kind of work that is uh, sort of respectable, solid policy work. All right, Paul, do you have any highlights from the spring sitting? One may be coincidental, but it's awfully handy for any government that's looking to be re-elected, which is that the economy is growing great guns oh, yeah. for the first time in a long time. Average 3.75 over the last three quarters. Uh, before the budget came down in the spring, I spoke to someone who works for um, for uh, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, who said, we can't catch a break. If we just had a little mm-hmm. bit more economic growth, we could uh, amend some of the plans we have, we could accelerate stuff, we could bring in new th- things. At the time, they couldn't, and they brought in the most extraordinarily rehashed budget I can remember in 23 years on the Hill. If this keeps up, first of all, it, it kind of won't matter what's in the budget because people will just be in generally a better mood than they have been for a while. And secondly, the, the government will be able to um, uh, do some fancy new stuff as they start to approach the next election. And another thing that's interesting, uh, and, and, it, and it's extra parliamentary because I think, frankly, the work the Liberals have made in the House of Commons has been pretty much a hash. Uh, but Trudeau gets out a lot uh, as uh, the most uh, photogenic and well-known 
sort of Canadian political personality to um, uh, seek to attract uh, foreign investment uh, mm -hmm. uh, at a retail level, meeting with Mary Barra, the president of General Motors, meeting with people from high senior executives from Google and other big companies, and, and encouraging them, frankly, to invest in Canada instead of in the United States. Um, uh, these are the sort of things that are going to pay dividends um, uh, in the economy, which is the number one predictor of whether a government's going to get reelected or not. Hmm. Any lowlights for either of you two? Yeah. Lowlights. Um, well, I, I guess I don't, I'm, I'm not going to call this a, a lowlight, but I do think that another economic story that I covered was Navdeep Baines, the innovation minister, announcing his supercluster strategy. And this was this competition they're having where the government's going to fund by the end of this year, so it'll help in the fall, three to five superclusters, some kind of innovation, innovative clusters. And most of the reaction I heard to that was skeptical. People think, how can they pick the right cluster? How can they choose just a few? How can they balance it regionally? If they do balance it regionally, will that mean that they've allowed politics to intrude on good economic thinking? So there's one that I'm not saying it was a, a bad day for them, but it was a, certainly an inconclusive day when they launched that strategy. I'll be interested to see whether that you know, works out for them or not. Paul, what do you got? Uh, it is not clear what the innovation minister uh, uh, plans to do to uh, increase innovation. It's not clear why we have a science minister. They're going to name a chief science advisor this summer. Uh, the heritage minister seems to want to do something to help the media industry. Uh, and yet every concrete idea that comes forward, whether from the public policy forum, whether from the heritage committee is shot down immediately. Uh, they have not yet, after two years, named a single officer of parliament. Uh, their last attempt to do so, uh, Madeleine Mayer for, uh, for uh, Official Languages Commissioner, was a fiasco mm. uh, and had to withdraw her uh, candidacy in disgrace after revealing, incidentally, that she had uh, her interview with the Heritage Minister for the job had been a telephone interview. I could go on. <laughs> uh, in general, in a lot of these cases, they're paying the price today for uh, overly, uh, overly uh, ambitious and sort of airily conceived election promises two years ago. It, a lot of stuff seemed easy at the time. Anyone could have told them it would not be easy. They're, they're, they're slowly learning that, in fact, it not only is, is a lot of it not easy, it can't be done. All right, so before we look ahead towards the summer and the fall, let's talk a little bit about a new political leader that was appointed uh, by their membership elected. during this yeah, elected. elected. Sorry. <laughs> They, they chose, okay. they chose Andrew Scheer to take mm. over as conservative leader after Stephen Harper and Ronna Ambrose in the interim. Uh, how do you think Scheer has performed so far, although it's only been uh, maybe a month or so since yeah. he was picked? I think he's been okay. Uh, he, he, you know, he's a well-known quantity around Parliament Hill, right? I mean, this is a guy who was Speaker of the House and people know who he is. So you expect him to be reasonably sure-footed in the House and he has been, but nothing spectacular and we haven't seen him yet make the kind of appointments and give assignments in his caucus. They'll give a sense of how he's going to have things sh shaped. So I think the jury's still pretty much out on Mr. Shear. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? Previous Green uh, Party leaders who ended up mattering uh, in the history of their parties did so by surprising early. Uh, this is, this by is, Green Party leaders, you mean like not, long, not yeah. Green Party, but... Uh, inexperienced. Rookie. I mean, right. this is way before my time Got even, it. but Brian Mulroney in 1984, oh, yeah. uh, backing the Francophones in Manitoba on the Manitoba schools question, uh, essentially shattering a legacy of uh, conservatives as uh, not caring about, about the French-Canadian fact and paving the way to winning 74 or 75 seats in, 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 in Quebec. Um, uh, Stephen Harper, a little later in his own career, reaching out to Red Tories and the Progressive Conservative Party mm -hmm. and then to Quebec nationalists and going so far as to recognize Quebec as a, uh, a nation within, within uh, United Canada. 
the one question I have with Andrew Shear, who's a nice guy, who's well liked, uh, is does he have it in him to surprise at all? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good and point. Uh, and I, I think if he can't, then the people who would always vote conservative are going to vote conservative, and the people who would never vote conservative will not be inclined to give the party a second look. Hmm. All right. So looking ahead, then uh, aside from what Andrew Shear has to do, which is try and surprise us. What should the government be on the lookout for? I mean, they ended the spring sitting in a, in a big clash with the Senate and the House of Commons. Mm. Can we expect more of that in the fall moving forward with a more independent Senate? What, what are the other challenges that uh, they need to prepare themselves for? Senate's a good one to, to look at, although it's funny. When I think about the fall, I, I, I can't help but think about the international picture. Sometime in September, we're going to get a meeting in Canada of, led by Canada, EU, and China on climate change matters. And this was part of the the late spring government sort of about face to sort of position itself as not so cozy with Donald Trump, right? The idea being that Canada is looking further afield for allies and partners. And, and I think that'll be the first big, looks like it's shaping up as the first big fall sign of, of you know, making, making that feel real, you know? So Canadians will see their government with the Chinese and the Europeans rather than with the Americans talking about a big international issue. And I think that could go quite a distance to setting the tone for the for the uh, for the fall session uh, the rubbers hitting the road on a couple of big federal provincial issues uh, legalization of marijuana right. and uh, climate change uh, bringing in the green plan which which is needs to be in place and uh, and, and and operating in uh, 2018 which is nearly tomorrow what we've seen from the way that the government has handled uh, the pot legalization issue is that they're awfully good at alienating the provinces, not listening to their concerns, dumping all the hard problems in the province's lap, trying to get the credit for the, for the, for the progress while letting other uh, jurisdictions do their homework. Uh, that is an ex that's a toxic way to carry on major multi-level governance reforms. And pot was pretty small scale compared to what they're going to try and be doing uh, on, on climate change. Already they've, they've sent out strong signals that what they're going to do with this $2 billion climate fund that they had campaigned on in 2015 is to withhold it from provinces whose behavior displeases them. That'll be fun. <laughs> and actually, it'll be interesting to see once we see the, the, the climate change stuff uh, crystallizing, each province has to come up with something that meets Ottawa's standard in order for this to go forward in 2018 or the federal government says it will impose its own climate change policy. So it's not just that the provinces have signed up to say, yeah, we'll do it. They have to do something that, that meets the Ottawa's conditions. And it'll be interesting to see whether it's only two provinces that are offside or, or several by the time that works itself out. Prorogation, cabinet shuffle, rumors and speculation. Do you believe any of them over the summer? I think they could do it. If I was guessing, I would say smaller cabinet shuffle rather than larger one. But, you know, I question the, the, how much impact this kind of stuff has on a political level. Cabinet shuffle can be a practical matter. Prorogation would be a more symbolic matter to have a, turn, a, turn a new page, open a new chapter. I'm not sure the general public really cares about that. It, may, it, might, it makes a, an impact on Parliament Hill, but beyond Parliament Hill, I, I don't think so. Paul, is the timing right? Prime ministers are permitted to change their mind uh, on this sort of thing, but I'm told at senior levels that uh, Trudeau has no uh, plan to prorogue or to do a major cabinet shuffle. They feel like they're in the middle of stuff, not near the end of a chapter in time to start a new one. All right, excellent. Thank you very much. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean senior writer Paul Wells. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, Paul Wells, the Chief of Defence Staff and the Secretary General of NATO talk about Canada's new mission to deter Russian aggressions. We speak with the lead author of the new guidelines to reduce the risks of marijuana use. And we hear from Indigenous architects who are not happy with the government's dedication of a new Indigenous centre.
Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on our show, just how long should you wait to drive after smoking marijuana? And what's the safer way to consume the drug? We'll speak with the author of new cannabis guidelines from medical associations. And later, we'll see why some architects are upset with a new indigenous center across from Parliament Hill. But first. This week, McLean senior writer Paul Wells had taken a trip to Latvia in order to check out Canada's new mission in that country as a part of a grander NATO mission to try and counter aggressions from Russia to Eastern European nations. And Paul joins me now to chat a little bit about his trip and what he learned uh, from speaking with uh, some high-level military officials, both Canadian and NATO. So, Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. What did you learn on your trip? What did you get to experience when you were out there? It was kind of a whirlwind uh, couple of days in Central and Eastern Europe on Monday I was in Latvia, where the Canadian-led battle group, 450 Canadian soldiers from the Princess Patricias, uh, are leading uh, uh, an 1,100-soldier uh, battle group stationed to defend Latvia against, frankly, Russian aggression. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a major contribution by Canada to this NATO effort. There are four battle groups across the region. The um, the, the Brits are in Estonia, the Germans are in Lithuania, the Americans are leading a battle group in Poland, and the Canadians in Latvia. And they had the welcoming ceremony, so we saw essentially the welcome parade. Uh, and I also spoke to uh, uh, senior officials, uh, Harjit Sajan, the defense minister, was over there, uh, uh, Jonathan Vance, the chief of defense staff, and Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO, on the significance of this mission. The battle group, uh, the battle groups we have deployed, uh, we, uh, we have deployed to the Baltic countries and Poland uh, are only part of a bigger picture. Uh, we have significantly increased our ability to reinforce uh, if uh, needed. Uh, with the tripling of the NATO response force to 40,000 troops and a new spearhead force, uh, brigade that can be deployed within a, a few days. Then we have also improved the way uh, we link NATO forces, multinational forces, uh, to home defense forces, uh, Polish forces, uh, Baltic forces, with the new uh, NATO force integration units, small headquarters, which are linking up the NATO forces uh, to the uh, home defense forces. And, uh, and, uh, and then behind that, of course, we also have the, what we call the follow-on forces, uh, which can then uh, reinforce uh, even more if there is a need. So the important thing with the battle groups is that they are, uh, they are uh, combat-ready, well-equipped, well-trained, uh, and, and they are multinational, sending a clear signal about NATO unity, about uh, that one, an attack on one ally will be regarded as an attack on the whole alliance, uh, uh, and, they, and they are able to, uh, to defend, but more importantly, the presence of uh, the battle groups in the Baltic region and Poland uh, provide deterrence, and the purpose of that is to prevent the conflict uh, by sending a clear message that uh, an attack on uh, any of the Baltic countries or any other NATO ally will trigger a response from the whole ally. That's really interesting. And Paul, this isn't just a traditional military operation in, in the sense that most Canadians are used to. What else is involved with all of this? Well, there are new dimensions, uh, and and things that we've seen in recent uh, uh, electoral 
confrontations in the United States, in France, and elsewhere. Uh, uh, cyber warfare, uh, disinformation campaigns, spreading rumors. Uh, there was a, a false rumor that a German soldier was involved in a rape in Lithuania that was designed to uh, increase uh, uh, mistrust uh, against the, you know, quote unquote, German occupiers there. And the Canadians are. Uh, very concerned that that sort of thing might uh, might be tried against the Canadian troops there. And Jonathan Vance, the chief of the Canadian Defence Staff, told me that uh, for that reason, there are going to be constant and, uh, and, 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 and uh, serious efforts to ensure that Canadians uh, don't get in trouble, don't give a pretext uh, f- for this kind of trumped-up incident, and, uh, and on the contrary, get along very well with their Latvian hosts. Uh, I do hope that you know, a, a really good bond is created between Canada and Latvia. Like, really, uh, we've got families living here. Uh, and over time, more families will live here. So there'll be Canadian uh, kids graduating from Latvian high schools. Uh, there'll be people making best friends. Uh, Latvia will be important to a lot of people for a long time. Uh, and Canada will be uh, important to Latvians. So it's, it's more than just, I mean, the, the question points to the fact that this is more than just in the field and training. There's a, there's a wider effort here. I will tell you that we're going to do our very best to uh, bring hockey uh, to Latvia. We're going to, uh, in fact, we're going to have some meetings with uh, some of the, the senior Latvian leadership in sports. Uh, we really would like to try and contribute to Latvian minor hockey uh, so that the, their kids get a bit of taste of Canada. We'll bring over some marquee players at some point and... Uh, yeah, Latvia is hockey crazy, and they know Canadian hockey very well. So we're going to make that uh, kind of an important uh, way to kind of break the ice between Canada and Latvia. Paul, the diplomacy factor is really interesting and obviously necessary in a situation like this. But looking at the military aspect of all of this, you've got you know 400, 450 Canadian soldiers. You've got 5,000 soldiers uh, across the border with Russia. But in the grand scale of things, that doesn't really seem like a lot. Is it enough? Well, it is pretty thin on the ground, especially when we consider that in the, the so-called ZAPAD exercise in, the, in September, the Russians are going to be fielding between 50 and 100,000 soldiers in an extended war game, something they do every year. Uh, so it's between uh, 10 to 1 and 20 to 1 if you, if you look at soldier to soldier. But you have to keep in mind uh, the, the, the military adventures that Vladimir Putin has indulged so far. In uh, backwoods like uh, northern Georgia and eastern Ukraine, where there was almost no organized military opposition at all, uh, Putin likes to pick the low-hanging fruit. He likes to go where it's easy. And, and, and what the soldiers of NATO are doing now that they're in charge and that the politicians of NATO have taken a bit of a backseat is they're working hard every day to refine uh, their methods of working together, to conceive of these four very different countries as a single battle space, to practice getting familiar with the, 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 the crucial parts of, the, of that territory, and to um, ensure that in any real confrontation, any uh, real in, invading force would take just a hell of a hit. And as we heard from uh, Jens Stoltenberg, this NATO Secretary General, it's not just these 5,000 troops in these forward, these forward bases. Behind them, there's a 5,000-troop uh, uh, rapid response mission that NATO keeps operating at all times. Behind that is a 40,000-troop uh, reserve that, that NATO has and some of the most sophisticated military equipment in the world. I saw a B-1 bomber when I was in Lithuania. The upshot of this is that 
these 450 Canadian troops and their 5,000 uh, colleagues from, from 20 countries are essentially the tripwire of a much more elaborate, much more, frankly, brutal uh, military apparatus that is waiting to be uh, called into action if, if, if ever it were required. What was the morale of the troops like? I think they're still sort of um, figuring out what their meth- mission is going to be. One of the things that really struck me is that a lot of the individual soldiers, especially at the command level that I spoke to, came up and really learned the soldiering trade in Afghanistan, in the Canadians' case, and in Afghanistan and Iraq, in the case of some Americans that I spoke to. Um, so they're used to fighting counterinsurgency. They're used to uh, fighting against uh, disorganized, poorly equipped, uh, uh, highly improvisational forces like, the, uh, like al-Qaeda uh, and the Iraqi insurgency. Um, this would be a very different combat. They would be fighting uh, 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 tooth and nail against a, a Russian army that is uh, comparably sophisticated and brings heavy, heavy firepower. It would be a very different kind of conflict. Uh, and so they're bringing these instincts that were honed in combat in Afghanistan and to some extent in Iraq to a very different battle space. And obviously what they really hope is that they'll never have to use the skills that they brought with them and that they're requiring in place now. The whole point of deterrence is you try and avoid a conflict by making everyone believe that you're ready to fight that conflict if need be. All right, Paul Wells, thank you very much. If you want to read his piece on his trip to Latvia, check it out on mcleans.ca. Coming up on McLean's on the Hill, a year before legalization, we speak with the author of New Marijuana Guidelines aimed at helping users reduce the risks of consuming cannabis. And later, why the dedication of a new Indigenous space across from Parliament Hill is upsetting some Indigenous architects. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on our show, the Prime Minister's choice to dedicate the old U.S. Embassy in Ottawa to Indigenous Canadians is not pleasing everyone, including some Indigenous architects. But first, we're about a year away from marijuana becoming legal in Canada. The Trudeau government has a bill currently before Parliament that would make marijuana legal for recreational use for people above the age of at least 18 by July 1st of 2018. Getting ahead of that, though, a group of medical associations in our country came together to create new guidelines for lower-risk cannabis use. The lead author of these guidelines is Dr. Benedict Fisher with the Center for Addiction and mental health. He actually popped by my office to quickly chat about these guidelines shortly after they were released. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. I guess we'll start off by having you walk us through these guidelines. What are the guidelines for lowering the risk of cannabis use uh, amongst Canadians? Yeah, so I'll begin by a little bit of context. Uh, So we're talking about cannabis use uh, which is engaged in by millions of Canadians, and we're going towards legalization in this country, which means that we're legalizing not for the sake of legalizing, but we want to improve public health. So the question now becomes, how do we do that? And we know cannabis use clearly comes with risks for acute and long-term harms, 
however, the science clearly says a number of the key variables that determine risk and harm outcomes are really related to the choices and the behaviors of cannabis users. In other words, users themselves can make certain decisions and choices in regards to their use that will modify the risk for various kinds of harms. So we went to the science, we systematically reviewed the science for evidence on what those variables would be so that we can translate them into recommendations that will help both health and addiction professionals, but also users to modify and ideally reduce their risks related to cannabis use if they're deciding that they want to use. I'm not going to, you know, uh, number them down and list all 10 of them, but I'll give you some of the highlights. So a no-brainer, if you forgive the pun, uh, so to speak, is um, that if you want to completely eliminate your risks uh, from cannabis use, don't use, okay? But then if you're deciding to use things like the age of onset for young people is a really critical factor for determining the likelihood or severity of subsequent uh, risks and harms. In other words, the later people begin to use in life, especially when it comes to teenage years, the later in, in teenage age or even pushing into early ad adulthood, the, the less likely you are to encounter serious risks for harms. So that's an important message to inform general prevention. Another important one is the intensity or frequency of your use pattern really shapes the risk for various harms uh, significantly. In other words, it makes a very big difference whether you're using daily intensively versus maybe once a week or occasionally. In the, the latter scenario, you're a lot less likely to experience acute or long-term uh, harms. It's a little bit similar to low-risk drinking guidelines around patterns. And then cannabis use impaired driving is another important one. The science clearly says, regardless of the law, what the law says and detection of metabolites and so on, that more or less at minimum, uh, your body or mind is impaired within six hours at minimum of use. So categorically, within six hours of consumption, do not get behind the wheel of a car, don't ride your bike, don't operate cranes or heavy machinery because your your cognitive, mental, psychomotor abilities are impaired and you're at much elevated risk to harm yourselves, uh, yourself or others. So these are just some of the examples of the concrete recommendations that we distilled out of the science and translated into concrete recommendations. And now it's also up to health authorities, governments, regulators, local health and addictions folks to take those things and effectively disseminate them into the population. Another interesting one, but also may seem like common sense for many people, uh, is the fact that you're advising people not to smoke cannabis, which is probably the most common way it's consumed. But you say if you want to lower your risks, don't smoke it. Don't spark up. Yes, it's an important and a bit of a tricky area. When it comes to pulmonary bronchial harms, and there are clearly such problems related to cannabis smoking, which, as you say, is the most common route of use, the best way is actually to not to if you want to lower your risks in that arena to not smoke combusted burnt uh, cannabis 
as you know, probably there's a, a number of uh, like alternative use ways have been emerging, like uh, vaping, uh, e-cigarette devices, but also, for example, edibles have become a common phenomenon. So for reducing pulmonary bronchial risks, these alternative ways are uh, surely better because they basically avoid the pulmonary bronchial risk problems. At the same time, some of them have their own risk uh, characteristics. Um, it's, it's not given at all that vaping or e-cigarette devices are safe. They're likely to be safer, uh, but definitely not safe. But then also around edibles, you have things that if you don't know exactly how much THC is in your product and there's the onset of psychoactive, uh, the, the delay of psychoactive effect onset, a lot of people go and use a lot more than they would naturally want to use. And then because of the delay of psychoactive effects, and then all of a sudden they consume too much and all this hits them and hits them a lot harder than what they wanted or what they're ready for. So there's a lot of sort of other hidden risks with these alternatives that people have to be, again, aware of and make the right decisions. Some of this is a good point to emphasize that some of those recommendations need to be complemented by regulatory or informational measures. So, for example, to make good decisions about edibles, the edible product needs to be clearly regulated in terms of THC, product labeling, regulation. Uh, the informer, the, the, the user needs to know what they're using and what they're choosing to use. Kind of like light beer and strong beer so that people know that they're consuming something that has a higher concentration of alcohol as opposed to a lower concentration. Exactly. That's a really, really good analogy. You know, you or I or many people, they go to the liquor store and they don't just like randomly buy anything they see in a bottle, right? They go either to the wine or the beer, or they pick the low alcohol or high alcohol beer. And partly it's for taste, but partly it's also for health management and risk considerations. Another interesting guideline is about mental health. If you know of mental health problems, avoid cannabis. Why is that? Is cannabis a trigger? Yeah, so there has been a lot of focus on mental health outcomes associated with cannabis, specifically psychosis, which is, a, you know, clinically when it occurs, a, a very uh, unfortunate and, and grave uh, con uh, gl clinical condition. So we want to avoid that. Now, uh, there's been a lot of myths out there or assumptions that, you know, cannabis causes psychosis and everyone who use, uses cannabis, that's definitely not the case. We know that there are associations, limited associations. Nevertheless, there are associations between especially free, high-frequency potent cannabis use and psychosis. However, they occur also mostly in people who have a genetic or family predisposition for psychosis. In other words, a lot of the psychosis associated with cannabis use is not freely and categorically caused by the cannabis. It basically functions as a trigger, as you describe it. And so it's, of course, prudent for people who have this predisposition or people who have other substance use disorders and are sort of predispositioned for those problems in general to probably advisably i speak you know i speak from a health and health promotion perspective it's advisable that these people do not engage in use 
And on the mental health factor as well, if you're using it as a coping mechanism, obviously there are underlying issues that need to be dealt with in terms of mental health uh, or seeping, seeking help as opposed to using it just for recreational use. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is interesting. First of all, the recreational and therapeutic or whatever you want to call it usages are not delineated in a black and white fashion. I mean, a lot of people who we would label as recreational users actually probably every every user, you know, derives some benefit from the use. Otherwise, it would be nonsensical for them to use it. And we know that a lot of people with mental health problems use psychoactive substances, not just cannabis, but also alcohol or even actually tobacco because it subjectively alleviates some of their mental health symptoms or problems that are otherwise not addressed. And sometimes actually that for some people that works quite well. Otherwise, again, they wouldn't be doing it, although it comes can come with a lot of risks. At the same time, if this is what's going on, then really what this is pointing to is that these underlying issues are not professionally or effectively dealt with by in the way they should be dealt with. And even though people may feel, well, this is a good thing for me, it's probably a good reason for them to go and seek professional assessments and help to find out, you know, how can these issues really best be dealt with. So you talked about myths. What are the biggest myths out there that you see about marijuana use? The biggest myth is probably at this point the most relevant myth is that it's really not harmful or that there's no risks. And there's a lot of uh, young people where that attitude in some shade of gray kind of exists. And that's obviously something we have to tackle. This is clearly not a risk-free substance. At the same time, the risks are... They're diverse, but they're also limited, especially relative to when we compare it with alcohol or tobacco. And at the same time, as I was saying at the launch earlier this morning, I think we created or amplified the extent of these myths a little bit by our very failed or inappropriate prohibition policies where young people would say, look, I have this drug here and I know it may have some risks, but it's really certainly not more harmful than alcohol or tobacco. It can't, I can't overdose really. It won't kill me likely unless I maybe get impaired and drive. So we have this drug. I can get criminally arrested and even go to jail and have a criminal record for half my life. Whereas the other stuff that's likely more harmful to me, I can buy in the grocery and in the liquor store. So what's going on here? And I think that severe imbalance in our policy approaches or what's been conveyed, that sort of double standard has amplified a lot of people's, young people's impressions that cannabis is actually really not harmful. Our control systems have distorted real impressions. And of course, we haven't because it's been illegal. For example, it's been illegal for teachers to talk about this really in schools, right? Except for sort of the fear-mongering stuff. There's no one in educational settings because it's been a criminally illegal behavior to go and say, look, don't do this, but if you do it, here are some tips or whatever. So we're hoping to primarily while pointing out realistically the risks and what they are and what their limitations are, 
to ensure that especially young people where most cannabis use is going on, that they're realizing the risks clearly exist. Some of them are minor, some of them are pretty serious, but here are some tips and recommendations based on science, not on ideology of what people can do to reduce or limit those risks. So it's a very commonsensical, pragmatic, public health oriented approach to the reality of the fact that we have millions of Canadians using this drug, uh, especially young people, and we're going into a policy reality of legalization where the onus is now on us to really do the right thing and everything possible to make this as safe as possible for people. All right, that was Dr. Benedict Fisher with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He's also the lead author of the new guidelines on lower-risk cannabis use. Coming up after the break on McLean's On the Hill, why Indigenous architects are speaking out against a new Indigenous centre the Prime Minister dedicated to Indigenous peoples this week. Welcome back to McLean's On The Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau must have thought that it would be an unambiguous moment of celebration. Earlier this week, he stood in the sunshine on Wellington Street, just across from the Parliament buildings, and announced that the vacant former U.S. Embassy building there would be turned into a center for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. This is your space. We want you to decide how best to use it in order to serve your communities. But, as is so often the case when it comes to Indigenous politics and policy, the moment turned out to be a bit more complex. For starters, a group of Indigenous architects doesn't like the idea. For some insights into why Trudeau's plan to create an Indigenous centre on Parliament Hill is being met with mixed response, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes interviewed architecture professor David Fortin of Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Born in Calgary and raised in Saskatchewan, Professor Fortin is of Métis ancestry and he's a member of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada's Indigenous Task Force. Professor Fortin, I think some people hearing that you and and some other people involved in an Indigenous Task Force on Architecture don't like the idea of the former U.S. Embassy Building, 100 Wellington, uh, being a center for Indigenous, uh, I guess, an Indigenous center of some sort, don't like the idea, are going to be surprised because it's it's a quite a famous building. The location is obviously magnificent right across from Parliament Hill. It seems like a like a, a real gift. Can you just sketch for people what, what the objection is about? Well, the objection objection certainly isn't about the the gesture. You know, the the gesture itself is uh, welcomed in the sense of the government making, uh, uh, I guess, a recognition of the importance of the relationship between nations, right? This nation-to-nation kind of geography that could happen there is... uh, is potentially very powerful. That idea that, of, of, I'm sorry if I can interrupt it for a minute, but that, that idea of the a new Indigenous Centre sort of directly facing the Peace Tower, facing Parliament, there's a kind of an interesting symbolism there, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think all Indigenous people would say that that's probably long overdue, this idea of a prominent position on Parliament Hill for Indigenous peoples to, mm-hmm. to know that that's a place, a, a kind of centre for them to inhabit within within our capital city. So I think the, the, the gesture itself is, is to be 
commended and, and would be applauded. But um, the reality of it being, uh, well, there's a couple of factors for me. One is the building itself. Um, if you look at the building itself, um, the the initial intent for that building, regardless of its style for a second, is, is based on the idea of an embassy, meaning it was there to house guests uh, from other countries into, into Canada. Um, from an Indigenous perspective, even that in itself, to then uh, have the United States move out of that space and then have uh, Indigenous community people move into a space designed for guests, uh, that, that sort of, it doesn't really... Um, it's not consistent with the indigenous peoples of this place. In, in they're, not they're not guests. They're not guests. They're not ambassadors. And so it's a funny relationship of an embassy turned into now house uh, indigenous, you know, cultural uh, uh, content. Uh, that's the first kind of step of it for me. But the second part is the building itself. And so, you know, again, design, as, as we put out in the press release, the the building was designed in, in this Beaux-Arts tradition, which is really a kind of uh, extension of, of Italian Renaissance architecture, uh, and, and which became part of a, um, a colonial, um, you could say a colonial fingerprint in North America, right? And that's something the, the American uh, government really embraced in part of their, their form of democracy. And if, if you kind of think about that for a second, uh, and so that building becomes a kind of extension of that into Canada, and, you know, Canada's own parliament buildings were intentionally designed not to be of a classical architecture because of Canada wanted its identity not to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, a mere image of what would, was happening south of the border. Just, so just, just if I can interrupt again, so this is rude for people who don't know the building, the, the American, the former American embassy building, 100 Wellington, it kind of has pillars and a classical... I think it's called Palladian, a sort of look that is that, that that we associate very much with Washington, right? So that's the that's the distinction that you're you're painting here, correct? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And so when the Canadian government uh, was originally in design discussions and all the ideas surrounding, for instance, our own Parliament buildings, mm -hmm. it was a distinct choice not to have uh, the American style kind of reflected in our building. That's why we ended up going more towards a Gothic architecture. So if you think now of, of this idea of, of national identity um, being linked to architecture and now saying that an indigenous national identity should be housed within a building with not only not a Canadian, you know, Canadian Gothic interpretation, yeah. but an American, European, classical architecture, it's, it's, it's antithetical to what Indigenous people value. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's and, and aside from just the aesthetic, if you, if you look at the buildings of those types, it, you know, they're, they're, they're stone facades with punched windows, which more than likely often indicate that there are small rooms, individually privatized rooms. Often yeah. there's a hierarchy to these spaces, meaning like, you know, like the, the, there's a hierarchy to the people inside the buildings and decision-making, whatever it is. And that in, in itself, so the division of spaces within the building are probably antithetical to the way that indigenous space would have been used for for uh, governance and, and community gatherings. So there's really nothing about the building that would, would reflect indigenous people in any meaningful way. And there's really been a long tradition in, 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 in colonies around the world 
of, of you know, the, the government's finding places to put indigenous people, whether that be, you know, the reserve, land, the reserve lands, which can be controversial, and right down to within communities of community centers, um, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy over some of the spaces that indigenous people have been shoved into in the past. So um, while the gesture is good, the, the actual move involves a much greater conversation and discussion about you know what can what can happen with that site and is that building really the right choice that was professor david fortin the incoming director of the McEwen school of architecture at laurentian university in sudbury ontario well that's it for this week's episode for more of your politics and power join us next week on the hill